American culture, not sure you're aware of this, but it is, just, it is feeding consumerism. And the church has found itself in a precarious situation. The church has found itself in the situation where they're trying, the Church of America, trying to navigate how do we push culture, how do we create culture and not succumb to it. Uh, but unfortunately, what's often happened is church has become like going to a mall. In other words, you walk in a mall and you know the store that you're headed for. Uh, pick your store, whatever it may be for you. Route 21, right? Cheap, efficient, good clothing, some 100% cotton. You know what I'm saying. And, and so you go into whatever your store may be, and there's all kinds of stuff on the outside of the door. Like, and here's the, the clothing that we offer, and here are the things that we have to sell you. And then you walk in, and they've set everything up so that when you go in, you buy the particular thing. Here is everything that we have for you. And if you're not satisfied, then, then you'd walk out and you go to the store right next door. Well, well, you guys sell me what you have to sell me. Is there anything here that seems appropriate? Like, tell me what your best piece of merchandise is. Um, here at Matthias' lot, we're striving to not feed consumerism. In other words, uh, we don't want folks to walk in here and then us present this litany of programs to show you that we have all of our stuff together. Uh, We don't have anything to sell you, in fact. And our approach is that um, I am not the the only called man of God in this room. The consumeristic mindset puts the onus on the pastors. They're the ones that do ministry. They're the ones that we pay. So they're the ones that out there in the world need to be exemplifying Christ. We don't believe that here. We believe that in this case that I'm the called man to teach the word of God, but that the people of God in this room are called to be equipped by this church community to be sent out as missionaries. So we are not here to consume off of a programmatic idea. Rather, we're here to feast off the word of God that as Christians we may be sent out as missionaries into a lost and dying world and If you don't believe and you're here, welcome. It's amazing to have you here. And those are the two groups of people at Matthias' lot that we're trying to serve best. Those who need to be equipped as missionaries in this world, in all of your contexts, in your workplace, in your school, and those who do not know who Jesus is, who can come and hear the truth of the Scripture and let God do with you as he may. Are you with me? Those are our strivings. Do we do it perfectly? No. Do we have all kinds of screw-ups? Yes. Are we in desperate need of God's grace? Most certainly. But we are striving to not just be a shopping mall church. We're striving to be the church. And so I want to welcome you into that tonight. We have a bit of an experiment. Um, you know that when I bring up experiments that it's going to be an interesting evening. Um, we've been through First Peter, all of it, in ten months. And tonight is our uh, recap night. We're going to go back through literally the entire book of 1 Peter in one night, but we're going to do it in a very creative way. Now, the cool thing about this moment and opportunity is that no matter whether you've missed five of the 1 Peter teachings or you've missed the whole thing or you've been here the whole thing, it really is going to encompass us all. So I have a bunch of people that have pieces of paper. If those folks can stand up now, you need one of these sheets of paper and a pen. So if you guys can uh, pass these out quickly, that would be wonderful. We're going to need some more folks than 
the three of you. There's some pens there in your, uh, in your pew if you need some more. We'll just kind of start passing these back, and there's some pens in the back. Here you go. Send those that way. There we go. There we go. Here you go. Everyone needs one of those. Brilliant. You'll enjoy the artwork here, I hope. So we've got a couple right there. If you guys can start just passing these out amidst these folks. So everyone needs a uh, piece of paper and a pen. And uh, as we're passing these out, and you, if you don't have one yet, just raise your hand so we know where to get to. <clears throat> everyone have uh, this sheet of paper. We good? Okay. Everyone have a pen? We good? Almost there. Jared Myers doesn't have one yet. He's about got it. There we go. Oh, you got one. Good. All right. Now, you're going to have to stay with me, okay? You're going to have to stay with me tonight. You have your paper, and we're going to work through some things. And what I've realized in stepping back from teaching the whole first Peter is is I've realized something incredibly profound about the letter as a whole. But to get there, we need to take a bit of a journey, shall we? Okay, so before you start writing and probably some of you doodling, I want you to turn your attention to the screen. Matthew chapter 14, I want to start here. Give you some context on who Peter is. It's so difficult at times when you're reading the scripture to relate to these guys, right? You're like, they lived 2,000 years ago, they hung around Jesus, like, what do we have in common? I would uh, argue much. Look at this. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples, Peter was one of those, to get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. I love this about the Savior of the universe. A side note, he's praying. Constantly we see this picture of Jesus praying. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Now, this is portrayed in uh, Evan Almighty and all kinds of other movies, like this image of, of Christ and in those movies, blasphemous, ultimately. Christ walking on the sea. Imagine yourself as a disciple, sitting in the boat, fourth watch of the night, late, and all of a sudden you see this image coming on the waves. Again, it's so difficult to think that this was real, but this isn't folklore. Like, this happened. This isn't a fairy tale. This is a legitimate story. The scripture moves on. But when the disciples walking on, uh, saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, as you would be, right? Uh, and they said, it is a ghost. No, I'm not sure what the uh, Jewish context or perception of, uh, was of ghosts. I didn't do the research, but I would say that it's somewhat uh, close to ours. And they cried out in fear. Uh, so oftentimes, if you've seen, uh, the, what's, the, what's the fishing movie where there's a chance of dying and they're fishing in Alaska? What's? Deadliest catch. Yes, yes, yes. So fishermen aren't normally like weaklings, right? Like fishermen in general, like, you know, they get their hands dirty. They touch fish, which is ridiculously gross. I mean, they do some insane things, you know? And so in, in this moment, you've got a bunch of men on a boat And the scripture says they're crying out in fear. Imagine this, right? Imagine this. Now, look at this. But but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Right? Like that would soften your heart, right? Uh, Take heart, it is I. Like, Like we need something else here, right? He says, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I would uh, note that this is 
one of the first ways that we relate to this man, Peter. Uh, he, just, he just needs proof, man. He just needs so much proof. Is this, is this completely legitimate? If it is, then prove it to me. Call me on this water. Let's do this right now. Uh, verse 29. Jesus says, come. So imagine yourself at this moment. Bunch of men on a boat. They're crying out in fear. They think it's a ghost. Peter says, if it's you, Lord, like I'm doing this too. And then the words, all right, let's do this. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 29. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And you picture him like at first looking back at the guys like, oh, for real, it's on, you know. And then he like hops the thing. And you can just picture that moment, right? But when he uh, saw the wind, so he gets out there. As, as you can imagine, again, this is not folklore. This is real stuff. He gets on the water and he's, he's walking on it. And all of a sudden he starts to feel the wind. And he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, Lord, save me. All he had before him was Christ. In that moment, listen, a proud man humbled himself because of who Christ was. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, and you can imagine this moment, right? Like all the disciples are out there, and they're kind of like, Dude, you just got play. You know what I'm saying? Like they're like making fun of him. This whole banter's going on. You have little faith. Why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped, saying, "Truly, this is the Son of God." I want to say to you that this picture of pre-resurrection Jesus of Peter is the epitome of you and I. Proud men and women, desiring proof of the reality of Christ. And when he gives it, it's not enough. It's like in the mornings when our scripture is opened, hopefully, and he's just breathing the word through his spirit in us, and his reality is so present, and he's given us proof of himself. It's still not enough. And so I personally find myself where I relate to this man, Peter. Later, you know, he denies the name of Jesus to a little eight- or nine-year-old servant girl. I've done that before. Maybe not an eight- or nine-year-old servant girl, but you're with me, right? We find ourselves connecting to this man, Peter. Now, what he does in his letter is take us through a very distinct journey of which we will map out now. So get out your pens and your pieces of paper, and we're going to go through every piece that he maps out here. Now, um, we're going to begin with one of the most important statements of 1 Peter, and all of the numbers will correlate with the numbers on your page. The first thing is this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter says, A Jesus is the precious, chosen cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone here creatively put in the graphic. So it's not a church that's at the cornerstone. It's not a charismatic figure or a personality. It's not you. It's not a ministry. The Lord Jesus, King Jesus, is the cornerstone. He's the crux of everything. He builds his entire letter on the fact that religion will die, but Christ never does. 
And I fear that so many of us have put the religious following of rules as the cornerstone. This is the bedrock of your faith. But Peter says, no, no, no. It is Jesus. So up in your top, above number two, we're going to look at where Peter begins. And that is how Christ initiates. So Christ's initiation. Number two, we learn this in 1 Peter 3.18. That Jesus suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, at some points, I'm going to stop and teach for us real quick, and then we'll back up and understand. Listen, his big contention is that there's no other sacrifice needed. In the Old Testament, animal after animal after animal after animal had to be killed, had to be slain. Blood, blood, blood everywhere. And Peter says this, that once, one sacrifice means everything. The righteous in Jesus for the unrighteous us. Scripture says that no one is righteous, not even one. And so he died for that piece of righteousness. Number three, Peter says this. Jesus suffered for you. Ultimately, it was in obedience to Father God for the glory of Father God. But it's personal. It's you And I love this about Peter. Why? If there's anyone that understands personal relationship with Jesus, don't you think that Peter has room to speak? He was one of the 12, and not just one of the 12, one of the three, one of the three closest disciples to Christ. If anyone can say, he suffered for you, it's him. This is what religion never claims. Religion never makes Christ and you in this unifying relationship. Again, ultimately, it's not for your glory, but for the Father's glory, but it's very personal. Number four, he bore our sins in his body, and by his wounds, you are healed. The beautiful picture is this. Christ, on the cross, literally takes on the wrath of God. The wrath of God needed to be poured out because God hates sin. And in this one powerful moment, the wrath of God comes on Christ. And our sins born on the shoulders of Christ. And he dies for that reason. And by those wounds, the blood spilt, you are healed. Because he is the perfect Passover lamb. Now, healing, let's spend one moment on it. You're repaired, restored. What was broken, what came into this world as sinful and needing healing through his wounds, completely healed. Number five, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this, with the precious, and I love this word precious, with the precious blood of Jesus, you have been ransomed from feudal, ridiculous unnatured living, ransomed. I I know you understand the concept, but just a little bit more. That you've literally been bought through the precious blood of Christ. You have been ransomed, taken back for his. Friends, Peter just portrays this beautiful picture of Jesus that he never got in the Gospels. But as he stands face to face to Christ, as Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter's like, of course I do. Feed my sheep, he says. Three times this conversation goes on. Peter understands what it means 
have been ransomed from feudal living. Number six, according to his great mercy, you are born again to a living hope. All of these ways that Christ has initiated with us. Now, let's uh, briefly talk about being born again. Nicodemus had uh, uh, struggled in the gospel's understanding of this concept. So how is one born again? Do they, like what happens there, right? Um, Does it go through the whole process again? No, the concept is who you were is now dead. And now you are alive in Christ. And so you are literally born into a new, Scripture says, creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And uh, Peter says that that is a living hope. Why? Because you get the opportunity to look in the mirror and say, I am now a child and son of God and no longer a child of this world. Beautiful picture. Lastly, number seven. Jesus has gone into heaven and sits at the, uh, what's supposed to say, hand of God. Sits at the rand hand of God, right? It's a nice adjective. He's gone into heaven, he's ascended, and he sits at the right hand of God. So he's done all of these beautiful things on earth, but Christ has now gone and will come back straight from the right hand of God. Now, sit back from this and look at these things with me. All uh, seven of these things. He's the cornerstone, his precious blood. By his wounds, uh, we are healed. Listen, Peter makes some pretty strong statements about the Christ here. Amen? In fact, I would say, in a lot of ways, he sums up the person and work of Jesus. This is all about Christ, and here how it is all about him. He was the perfect sacrifice. By his blood, everything is done. One sacrifice for all. Now, his contention then is this. That demands response. Demands response from each of us here tonight. What does that mean for you? Do you believe that? Is that true? Well, for Peter, he's writing to followers, to believers. And so this next section that he goes into his letter is this. Next slide. There is a believer's response then. So for those who believe in the ways that Christ has initiated, there is a believer's response. Beginning number eight there. Chapter 2, verse 9, you are now God's people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is unbelievable. So if all of these things are who Christ is, his precious blood ransomed you from your futile way of living, by believing in that Christ, you are now God's child, a royal priesthood. You're set apart from the world. You're not of the world anymore. You're of him. You have his DNA and not the world's. Beautiful picture. Only for believers. Number nine. Then he says this. If you are going to respond to who Christ is, then Peter wrote this. Then be holy as I am holy. And he's quoting an Old Testament passage. But the concept is this. Is because you believe in God and Christ, in his holiness, in his majesty, in his purity, then you be holy as well. Impossible without Christ. And ultimately, though we still fail in this world, the command is clear. Be holy. Now he gets really into this in number 10. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let me explain this. Uh, check this out real quick. So um, this command, holiness, the church has had like throughout the years. Be holy as I am holy. Set apart holiness. Pure. Now many people have done a lot of things with this command, with this call. Right? Right? 
they've taken this command of holiness and they've said, okay, well, I need to, I need to work really hard at portraying to everyone else that inside I have it all together. And then that must be holiness. But what Peter says is, no, 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 you don't understand. Holiness and humility are connected. So you kick religion out right away. Holiness will ultimately be desired by the humble man that lowers himself and just desires to worship God in obedience, not obey so that they may be exalted. You see the difference? It's important. So humbleness, humility under the mighty hand of God, deeply connected to holiness. Number 11, chapter 2, verse 11, he says this, live as sojourners, abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Let me explain this. He's so adamant in all of his writings that we are to live as people that are not of this world. That we can't get comfortable here. That we're just here for some momentary blips. Our life is but a, but a, but a blur, but a whisper, but a mist, Scripture says. Can I ask you this? And we'll just pause here for a moment. How, just how comfortable are you have you ever been watching TV and you just get, you just get sick to your stomach by what you see? Have you, has that ever happened to you? I was watching Minute to Win It last night, okay? Solid show, right? A lot of fun. See what you can do with all random stuff, you know? It's kind of, and I'm watching like how much sex has become an idol even on stinking Minute to Win It. I just flip it on and there's this scantily clothed woman on this show it's all about just game and fun. And, and they've, I'm sure, asked her to dress like that so that more people will stop on the channel and just watch. Does that make you uncomfortable? Or have you been so desensitized to the culture that you're not a sojourner at all here? In fact, like this is, you're digging it. Right? Like th- this, is, this is home. You could live here. You could spend an eternity here. And that's really the question, isn't it? Could you spend an eternity here? I would... Imagine that some of you just by your life would have to answer that. Um, I'm kind of living like this is my home. There are moments living in this culture where we should get deeply offended, deeply sick to our stomach, deeply just disgusted by the sin that is out there in the world. What we do with that disgusting sense, Peter talks about later. But if that's not happening in you, if there's never moments when watching TV, you're just like, are you, this is, turn the channel now, then friends, you become way too comfortable and you're not a sojourner. To Peter, this was key. Number 12. Uh, chapter 1, verse 14, he says this, as obedient children, do not conform to passions of the former ignorance. Now what he's saying is, is the ignorance that you had before you came to Christ. Don't indulge in those passions Because, as he says earlier, they're futile. They mean nothing. They have no value. They have no worth. Just rid of that as obedient children. Now, some of you have kids, and I have a few, and I love them, and I cherish them, and I I love this. And my kids and I have this profound connection, and I've realized that. We have this profound connection when my four-year-old especially, because Dawson, I'm not sure what he hears right now, but my little girl... When I ask her to do something and she obeys me, and I've I've just been learning this, 
there's this profound connection that the two of us have. Uh, maybe you experienced that some as a teenager when you surprised your parents by obeying them, right? Like they asked you to do something. I remember um, my mom asked me to break up from my first girlfriend, Kylie Pebble. Uh, I've talked about Kylie before here. Um, she wasn't a believer, and uh, my mom, when I was 13, uh, you know, I'm such in the dating scene at 13, uh, no car, like McDonald's was our date, being dropped off by our parents, right? Some of you guys are still doing that in college. Anyway, um, I, I remember, like, coming home, my mom just being like, I, I need you to, like, I think you should, you need to just be done with Kylie Pebble. I'm like, but mom, Kylie, I mean, she, no, no, Mark, you need to, and, and I obeyed, and we had this, we had just this profound connection, and I wasn't doing it for the connection, but it was like my mom and I just, we just grew deeper. Have you ever had that sense with Father God? Like in obedience, all of a sudden, there was just this profound connection that you experienced because what he commanded you followed as obedient children. I would be willing to bet this, friends, that that experience, that encounter is out there. And the deep-rooted thing, even now that Avery and I sense, even though she's just turned four yesterday, it's just that when she obeys me just as an obedient, innocent child, we just, we grow so much together, right? That's what he's saying here. Number 13, uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, live for the rest of your time, no longer for human passions. You spent enough time living for human passions, so spend the rest of your days The big thing that's been on my heart, and I keep sharing this week in and week out, is the urgency that we need to be living with. And we're just just not there yet. I think that there is a sense of urgency that empowers the people of God when they get to the sense of, I don't want to waste one more day on anything that feeds or feasts off the flesh. Just give me you, God. I want nothing else. That sense of urgency needs to drive us and push us towards many more things. Number 14, I love this. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, long for pure spiritual milk. Uh, Leche, for those bilingual here. Is that the right, appropriate? Okay, good, yeah. Now, the the concept here that he he was teaching was, was there is a bunch of things that are on the peripheral, but the pure spiritual milk is the sustenance from the word of God that literally gives us life. Number 15, let's keep moving. In uh, continuing on in the believer's response, uh, in chapter 2, verse 13, he begins this long section. If you're going to respond to Christ's initiation, then it means you will submit to authority. Now, he began with submitting to the government, even when the government is messed up. He talked about uh, submitting to employers, even when they're uh, debunk, or even when they're bunk, rather. He talked about wives submitting to their husbands. If you are following Christ, submitting to Jesus, you say that he is God then submission to authority is a piece of it. Next slide. Number 16, chapter 4, verse 10. He says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Now I want to pause here and take a moment if I can. Uh, So the power of the church, the blessing of the church, is seen in the fact that God in His grace has given believers, followers of His spiritual gifts. There are five different lists of gifts in the scriptures. I've taught on a a few different times. Because there are five different uh, lists of gifts, not one repeating gift in any of the lists, it means the lists are not not exhaustive. Rather, it it means that that the gifts 
there are all kinds of them. And if you're a believer in here, you have them. And they're to be used to what? What does this say? Serve one another. For the edification of the what? Of the church. Now, maybe you're like me when I was 22. When I was 22, I wanted to run from the church. I was tired of hypocrisy. I thought I could just do church in my living room by myself with my mom, you know? I thought that church was just what was just my Bible opened with whatever was on. We have spiritual gifts to be used for the edification of the body, of the church. And so God like started to break my heart again for the local church. Messed up? Yes. Hypocrites? Yes. But we can be on a striving towards something else. And that striving is equipping the people of God to use their gifts. And so you have gifts and you're here and they're to be used to serve one another, not for self-edification. Huge. This is why we value the church here. Number 17. He says this in chapter 1, verse 22. If you're going to respond as a believer to Christ's initiation, then you must love one another earnestly with great gumption. You self-sacrifice, put the needs of others before yours consistently. Number 18. He says the end is at hand. Time is short. So be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be focused. Keep your mind set on the prize. The end is coming. Christ will return. All of this is so, cru- is so critical, so live as a sojourner. So, uh, pens down, right, as your professor would say. Look at this, look at this. I'll leave this up here for another second. Here's who Jesus is. Here's how we respond. Clear, right? Are we clear? It's very, very clear. Here's who Christ is, all of the things that Christ is. Ransomed, his precious blood, he's the cornerstone, he's everything. Here's how you respond. You love one another earnestly. You're a sojourner here. This world isn't your own. You're called to use your gifts in the church. Very, 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 very clear. Now, here's the thing that I didn't get until late last week. Because of these two things, it means a third. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and then you respond in such a way that encompasses what we just went through, then it means a natural outcome, and that's your third blank. The natural outcome of people who believe that Jesus has initiated, you respond in belief, and the natural outcome, number 19, Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Since Christ suffered, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. The natural outcome of belief in Jesus and then responding with a, with a life that is completely countercultural is Peter says this, Christ suffered, so arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Why? Because Christ embodied this life of obedience to the Father. And if you're going to do that too, then suffering will come. It is inevitable. It is coming. So you must arm yourself with the same way of thinking. But he has so much more to say on the subject. Number 20. They are surprised when you do not join in the same flood of debauchery. So if you're responding to Christ and you're living obediently as not a sojourner, then guess what? They're going to be completely surprised. They're like, what, what are you doing? Why aren't you just 
feasting off the faucet of the flesh with us? Why are you trying to distance yourself? Why are you separate? Why does your life look different? Why is there something more wholesome about you? Why do you see or, or seem more freed? Number 21. Number 21. Chapter 4, verse 12. Though they are surprised, he says this, do not be surprised then at the fiery trial. These go hand in hand. When you believe that Christ has initiated and that responds with your life, fiery trial is coming. Do not be surprised. Number 22. He says this, so when it, when it comes, do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse. He actually used the word revile. So culture looks at you and they're like, why, why aren't you just... Why aren't you feasting the way we're feasting? Why doesn't the flesh taste good to you like it does to us? And they abuse, and they throw out all kinds of names for us and slander us. And the scripture says, when they abuse, we, we abuse not. Number 23. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So, if you're suffering, look, look at this and listen to this. If your suffering is because of your belief in Jesus, King Jesus, not religion, but Christ is the cornerstone, if that is your belief and your response is then as an obedient sojourner fleeing from your childish passions, then you will be blessed. How? Next. Because you're rejoicing because you're sharing in the same sufferings of Christ. And I realized this this week. This may be one of, the, one of the only times in Scripture, though obviously we have no idea what it is to take on the wrath of God. Time and time again, Scripture says, rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ. It's like the, one of the only times in Scripture that talks about us sharing something with Jesus. And so in that... We are very blessed, church. He's not done, number 25. It is better to suffer, he says in chapter 3, verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In other words, if you want to murder someone and you suffer, then that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about suffering specifically because of who Jesus is. Number 26. He says, for a little while, you have been grieved by various trials. The trial that you're undergoing, all of the things that you're wrestling with, the abuse that's coming, it is very, very temporal. It's only happening for a little while. And then he ends with this, number 27. So, let those who suffer entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Now, What's happened in my heart from seeing all this is incredible. And I want to give you another second to finish. And then I want to plow through this together. All right? We've just seen the path that Peter takes through this whole scripture. Are we good? All right. He begins with who Jesus is. Make no mistake about it. Here's who Christ is. 
trust me, I'm Peter. I saw him. I heard the teachings. I saw the healings. And not just that, but I saw him face to face after he was resurrected. I saw him. Believe me. Believe, trust me. Here's who Jesus is. I've been ransomed by his blood. So can you. So here's what he says. Um, That must require a response. Can Can I ask you a question? I have many to ask you. How are you responding to your belief about Christ currently? What is your daily response to who Jesus is right now? Is Christ literally sitting on such a throne in your life? He has such power and control. He is to be glorified and worshiped so much so in your life that he is causing a momentary response. What I've realized more and more in my life is literally every moment it's possible to respond to what Christ has done. I know it seems so strange, but today I was getting my hair cut at Great Clips. Any Great Clips fans here? Any coupon fans here, right? Like my wife just gives me a coupon for my haircut, and then there I go. She actually kind of, anyway. So I was there, and I was talking to this woman about Great Clips, and this man came in. And uh, I could tell right away that her whole demeanor changed. And she goes, do you want a haircut or something? And he, and he goes, no, I, I just, I just, I'm just here to call for my cab again. And she goes, oh, great. And, and, you, and, she, and he was talking so loud, you could tell like he had come in many times to Great Clips, like asking to use the phone for a cab. And every person in Great Clips that worked there like instantly got annoyed with this guy. And so, as I do, I start talking to this girl about it after he leaves. I'm like, so tell me about this guy. Like, tell me like, what his deal is and what his situation is. She's like, he just comes in all the time and he just, he just wants cab rides and he never gives us business and he never, and so I let her rant for like five minutes and she's literally like, I'm like, take it easy on the hair, you know, like simmer down, right? And then I ask this. Then I say, has anyone here ever thought about giving him a ride one time? And, uh, and she kind of like stepped back, clippers in hand, you know? And she's like, well, well, what do you mean? Like, have you, has, has anyone here ever thought about just giving this guy a ride and, and seeing, like, where he's at and what his situation is, is like? And she came back and she said, why would I ever do that? And have you ever, had, like, had a softball just come at you, you know? And so in that moment, I just got to share, like, why I would do that. And so I sat there getting my hair cut, and I was just like, look, like, I don't, I know it's tough because this guy, and you're trying to run a business, but I was like, what if just one time this guy got some grace from the people here? More than just a phone call. I was like, have, could, like, could something happen in this guy's life that would just be crazy that you wouldn't even think about? And anyway, she disagreed with me, which was fine. But I walked out of that conversation, and I said, there are opportunities everywhere to respond to what Christ has done, you see? Like even in this moment, it could just as easily been, this is gonna take too much time, I could make this girl angry, she's cutting my hair, you know, all these factors. And so I just let her talk, and then I just said one question, what if? Friends, there are so many moments in your day to respond to the greatness of Christ. And so what Peter says is this, 
is if you really believe that this is who Jesus is, then your life becomes a response. And then he assumes what? If you respond in such a way that you are obeying as a sojourner, fleeing from your passions, then his whole contention is you will suffer. Why? He's writing to who? A bunch of people who are in Rome or around Rome who are being persecuted by Nero for their connection with Christ. Do you see this? Look, look at this. This all has just become so clear to me. If they deny the name of Jesus, they suffer not. You are, they're suffering in this letter because they're claiming Jesus. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is who I follow. If they deny Christ like Peter did so many days before, no suffering, no death. It's your, their attachment to Christianity that Nero was putting them on stakes was setting up in front of his fortress and burning them alive, acting as lanterns at night, literally. It was their connection with Christ, nothing else. So he's writing to a bunch of people, and he's assuming that because Christ is so good, there is only one response, and when you respond that way, suffering is coming. So prep yourself, brace yourself, and trust me, it's only going to last a little while because Christ sits at the right hand of God, and he is coming back now. Where I've personally been convicted is this. If the natural progression is here is how Christ has initiated, here is my response, and that means I will suffer, whatever our context here in in America is, and I step back and I look at those three things, the question I've been asking myself is, am I really doing this because it doesn't seem like this is happening much? Am I really responding to the initiation and the power of Christ because it sure doesn't seem like I'm suffering much? We're not talking about life threats here. In in America, obviously, we don't have the threat of being killed for the name of Christ. But even this moment today, sitting on this chair, as I'm getting ready to preach this sermon, I'm thinking like, I have an opportunity in love and with much grace to respond to Christ and take whatever this girl has to, has to bring. I mean, she, she said some things, right, about my personal view that weren't that favorable. It wasn't like I shared that and then we gave each other a high five and she like ran over and gave him a ride. Didn't happen that way, okay? She's like, that'll be nine ninety nine, right? You cheapo, thanks for the coupon, right? But what I'm realizing is, is like, I'm just not experiencing that as much as I desire. And so what's the answer? It must be that I'm not responding to Christ's initiation in complete obedience. It must be. Listen, it must be that I've gotten so comfortable in this culture that I just fit in, that I can slide behind others, and that my life just, I can act like I'm the same as everyone else. The promise of the scripture is this is if you look different than it, suffering will come. Are you with me? Now, one more scripture, okay? And then we're gonna close up shop, okay? Look at this. I wanna end with this because I think this brings it all to fruition. Chapter two, he says this. Concerning the salvation 
the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. For those of you that were here when we taught this, the Old Testament prophets, when they thought about the concept of grace, like they just dug into it. They were in it, they were on it. Look at this, verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, all these Old Testament prophets, they're trying to figure out when is Jesus coming? When is this, when is this period of grace going to come? Look at this, verse 12. This verse absolutely changed my life. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, these apostles, Peter being one of them, have preached about who Christ is, and you've received it. Then here's what he says. Things into which angels long to look. Okay. Christ, the response of believers, and suffering. All three means of grace. I can only believe in Christ by the grace of God that has allowed me to believe in him. I can only obey in Christ because of Christ, for Christ, because of his grace that allows me to not live like I'm I'm a child of this world and I suffer only because of his grace. In all these things, the celestial beings, angels, Look down at you and I because we taste grace and they long for it. Because because they don't know grace like we know grace. You and I know grace. It's, It's touched our lips for those of us that believe. It's changed our lives. It's caused us to be born again. We know grace. And the angels long for it. Just to experience what those humans are. Just to taste for a second the beauty of grace. The grace enough to what? To share in the sufferings of Christ. This beautiful grace needs to just cause a rejoicing in our hearts. So I close this whole letter of 1 Peter with two questions and then we're closing up shop and moving on. And the first question is this, do you need grace? Do you need it? Has your life today shown that you need it? Do you believe you need it? Are you doing well on your own? And not just by word, but by deed, by the way you're living. Did you show and reveal today that you're in desperate need of God's grace? Second question is this, where are you going to go to find it? There's a lot of different places you and I can run in search of it. Maybe over here, maybe this relationship, maybe this encounter, maybe this abuse, whatever it is, we can look for it in so many different means. But I want to encourage you with this. We desperately, every single one of us, need a tremendous amount of grace and Christ is the only place to find it. And what Peter says then is that grace, even in suffering, angels long to look. I'm just fearful, friends, that we're sojourners, not of 
this world, but of the things of Christ.